Does religion cause war? It would be naive to suggest a blanket yes or no answer. Anyone who's ever opened up a history textbook will testify to that. A more nuanced understanding is required. What drove men and women to commit violent acts throughout history? And if they did do it in the name of religion, is that an indictment on their God? Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. Welcome back to Signs of the Times Radio for another week. And this week, I have the great privilege of being joined by my co-worker, Vania Chu. How are you doing, Vania? I'm very well, Daniel. Thanks for having me on today. It's great to have you. And I think that what we're going to be discussing is right down your alley because you are a media communication professional But one thing that I didn't know up until somewhat recently, like a year ago, was that you also studied history. What inspired your interest in history? Well, I think, honestly, it was first to do with the Titanic. (laughs) And uh, this might sound a bit lame, but as many young teenagers that were around the same age as I did, we first watched the movie and then we learned about the true history, so what really happened behind the Titanic. And that kind of just sparked my interest in not just the Titanic, but what was the truth behind other movies and other stories that I had heard. And, yeah, I just ended up loving history, went to Sydney Uni, did a double major in ancient and modern history, and then did my thesis on 19th century white American women's history. Wow, that's very broad. I think that a lot of people, when they say they they have an interest in history, they usually nail it down to a specific time period. Like, for example, I'll be the first to confess that a lot of my historical knowledge starts in the 1900s and ends up where we are now. Other people like my fiance, they really enjoy ancient history. Have you had an area of particular interest? Sure. Well, firstly, thank you for saying that, Daniel, because when you tell people that you majored in history, people often uh, assume that you know about every single period of history and then start drilling you on things that you've never heard of before. But yeah, because I was a double major in ancient and modern. I was fortunate to do a lot of classes, but my specialties were probably ancient Greece for ancient history and then modern America for modern history. So I guess with today's topic, because we're tackling a a really meaty topic, we do want to add a a bit of a disclaimer in in that we are neither of us are complete experts in what we're going to talk about. But we do have some sort of research and understanding and we do want to leave space for, for the conversation for that to be challenged as well, which you can, you know, if you listen to this podcast on Faith FM, on SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever it is that you're listening to, to jump on our Facebook at Signs Mag or Signs of the Times Magazine, Australia and New Zealand and chuck us a message and we can have a bit of a conversation from there. We've got a series this year that we've been running, which is about the big questions, I guess, the questions that have been asked of Christianity and of the Bible. And we've been answering some of those throughout the year. And most of the authors that wrote those articles have also appeared on the podcast. And this month, we have a really dense topic, which is, does religion cause war? 
Now, have any prominent people that you've come across said that, yes, religion does cause war? Have you even heard this personally from friends or even maybe during your uni degree? Yeah, it's so funny that you say this, Daniel, because shortly after you asked me to write about this topic, I sort of did a little survey around my friends and said, well, what do you think? Is religion actually a cause of war? And I have friends from all different faith backgrounds and non-faith backgrounds, so I was pretty curious to see what they would say. And Undoubtedly, with only one exception, they all said, yes, absolutely, religion is a cause of war. Wow. Did they say specifically why? What particular conflicts made them think that? Well, this is what I found interesting because when I actually started to drill down and say, okay, well, what specific war are you thinking about or, you know, what religion or, you know, just try to get more meat uh and a better understanding of why they thought that, a lot of them were very vague. You know, they had vague answers about, oh, you know, there's conflicts here and, oh, something happened a really long time ago. But when it really came to getting the meat out of the topic and and, and sort of talking more specifically, they didn't really give me any concrete answers. I would agree with that as well because as well as being a podcaster and the magazine assistant editor and stuff. I also manage social media pages. And I do see comments like that, just out of the blue, without citing an example, claim that the Bible is violent and God is destructive and every conflict is the result of religion. Now, just before we talk about whether or not there were examples of violence in the Bible and what they meant in the context of that time period, I do want to talk about recent conflicts because those are the ones that probably people will have heard of the most. Sure. And now there, there have been a number of large conflicts in the last century. So it's now time for a history lesson with Vanya to unpack what was the motive. Now, I'm keen to chime in here a little bit because we studied World War One when I was in year 12 in history. So that's one that I, I've studied quite a bit. But can you just tell us about what were the circumstances that led to World War One happening? Sure. Well, look, there were there are a few different causes, I think, which led to World War One. There was nationalism, there was imperialism and militarism and also different political alliances. But the real cause of World War One is generally thought to be when uh, the Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip assassinated the Archduke of Austria in June 1914. Mm-hmm. And this was also an opportunity to basically pit Germany, Turkey and Austria-Hungary against France, Great Britain, Russia, Italy, Japan, and then eventually in the later part of World War I, the United States also entered. Right. It is pretty interesting that with World War I, that like this large-scale conflict that lasted for a number of years, it's one of the main ones that can be attributed down to this singular moment of that assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. But was religion involved in a major way in this conflict? And I'm I'm saying that religion was quite prominent in Europe at that time. So for sure that you'd find evidences that people would be doing things in the name of God. But was 
religion a primary factor in this conflict, would you say? I would say it was not a primary factor. And in fact, it was probably the opposite. So when the United States, for example, when they first entered the World War in 1917, the most prominent religious groups in America at that time were Catholics, Protestants and Jews. And they were having their own struggles in the country among these religions. And when they entered the war, they were actually united. And for the first time, instead of being Jews and Catholics inferior to Protestants, it became Jews, Catholics and Protestants all fighting with each other because they were part of the United States. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know about that. For people who are not aware of the connection between World War One and World War II, what were the circumstances? Obviously, World War One ended in, in 1918 with a, a Treaty of Versailles. And that, in large part, is what actually led to World War Two happening. Can you just sort of explain what was the link there between the two wars? Yeah, absolutely. So the Treaty of Versailles, basically all these countries had gone through such a horrible, devastating global conflict and they wanted to ensure that they would never have to go through something like that again. So they came up with something called the Treaty of Versailles. Unfortunately, the Treaty of Versailles sort of played the blame game. It made Germany a scapegoat. And it placed all the responsibility of the war on Germany's shoulders, which meant that they had to go into debt paying several billions of dollars in payments. They had to give up a lot of their territory. And then they also had to accept Allied occupation in the region around the Rhine River. So a lot of them felt that they had been humiliated, that they had been duped or forced into signing the treaty, and it definitely paved the way for the Nazi party to become supported among Germans because they promised we're going to overturn our country's humiliation and we're going to become a superpower is revenge, basically. Yeah, I think World War II is just as interesting, if not more than World War I, because of the circumstances that led to it even happening in the first place. Like It seemed like there was just the right sort of perfect storm for Hitler to rise, and not only to rise, but he had the full support of the German people who you know, were feeling a bit sorry for themselves because times were economically hard, and Hitler promised them that he was going to take them out of it, and then Germany went on to... to conquest across Europe. Now, the question is then, what were Hitler's motivations for doing that? And particularly, a lot of people will be aware that one of his main most evil acts was the Holocaust, the extermination and genocide of of Jewish people, as well as there was a number of other people who were also exterminated. Jehovah's Witnesses as well were exterminated. So there was, you know, various people that Hitler hated that fell into that category that were also alongside Jews killed in camps and stuff. What was Hitler's motivation for doing all of this, do you think? Sure. So Nazism was essentially a racial ideology. And I've heard a a sort of discussion between Cardinal George Pill and Richard Dawkins, you know, who both obviously, you know, one was is a very um, religious figure and Dawkins was an atheist. And they both had perspectives on Nazism, which were at the same time they were different but also went together. 
So Dawkins reckons that Hitler wasn't an atheist and Pill reckons that Nazism was an atheist movement, but they both agree that Nazism was basically social Darwinism or natural selection. So the idea that if they could weed out what they considered to be weak traits or weak characteristics or obviously the anti-Semitism led to them wanting to weed out Jewish people. It was essentially about Hitler wanting to create what he thought would be a super race, supposedly like a, this high caste super race, which would be able to be better than everybody else. Right. And it all started really with his book, Mein Kampf, which he wrote, I think, while he was in prison. He wrote that book and in it, he expressed that he, or he alluded to his own personal religious convictions. And a lot of people cite that as an example that Hitler was a Christian, but also there's a bunch of other people and like historians seem to have debated this over, over the last century, what his religious views were. And it seems like he was at the same time, he later on became anti-Christian. He also criticized atheism. Is the conclusion that we can draw here that just Hitler hated everybody? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, he definitely seemed to hate a lot of people. And, you know, it, it wasn't just the Jews. He also hated Christians, I think. He hated ethnic groups. He hated people with disabilities. He basically hated everybody that didn't fit into his idea of what constituted the ideal race. Right. And just going back to what you were saying about ethnic and racial groups, there seems to be a little bit of theme going on in conflicts in the last century because there's a a number of other ones that also included that as undertones for, for those conflicts. Can you just share about what some of those have been? Sure. So the Guinness World Records, for example, counts the Russian Civil War as the world's costliest civil war in terms of the number of lives that were lost during combat and events that were relating to the war. So this was fought between opposing political factions, Bolshevik versus anti-Bolshevik, and it was also basically about controlling Russia. There was the Sino-Chinese War in 1937 to 1945 when China began resisting Japanese expansion into its territory. So that led to 4 million Japanese deaths and Chinese military deaths. There's the Great War of Africa, also known as the Second Congo War, which involved nine different African nations and killed estimated 3.8 million people. And Look, Romania, North Korea, Cambodia, basically the list goes on. Yeah, a number of those conflicts, you know, that have happened. It seems for me like those two main ideas of nationalism and uh, land rights, as well as tension between ethnic groups, seem to be pretty prominent. And Indeed, those sorts of tensions still exist today. Like we still have tensions between groups. Like if you look yeah, to, to Europe, there's still, I guess, a large amount of tension. Like we look at what happened in Crimea recently, self-determination, that sort of idea goes back to World War One. You know, we want to own our own land. It's not just a, a World War One idea. It's still present today. However, there are some examples of, of recent conflicts as well that people will be aware of. But again, to prescribe it to one 
particular problem like religion is what causes the Israel-Palestine conflict is a bit neglectful of all the other issues going on there as well, isn't there? Like there's also, again, ethnic land right sort of issues going on. What would you say about that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Daniel. And I mean, we're... I mean, if we were to say that religion is the only driving factor, we would be forgetting, for example, that there are people who live in Palestine who are Jewish and who would be supportive of Palestinians. We're forgetting that there are secular Jews who, who are, you know, born in Israel, but don't necessarily follow the um, religion. So I think we're forgetting that there are other, you know, it's not, quite as cut and dry as religion being the main factor or the only factor. As well as that, also, I think it it really comes down to the people who are in charge making these decisions. Like one of the recent pieces on the news is the, the conflict in Afghanistan, right? Now, I have a lot of Muslim friends and a lot of them, the ones that I've talked to, do not interpret the Quran in an extremist way, like is interpreted uh, through Sharia law and, and jihadism. So it comes down to the people who, who decide to interpret something a certain way as well as, and their decisions on how they're going to act upon that more so than what's actually listed in the actual text. Because I've read passages from the Quran, which are all about peace. Like, am I right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Daniel. I've got Muslim friends too who are very against what's happening with the Taliban and with control. And I mean, we see, you know, people who are there who are Muslims who are trying to escape the country because they fear the consequences of what might happen once these leaders choose to implement stricter laws. So we know that this isn't something that's not only being felt by people outside the religion, but people who are part of the religion and disagree with it. Do you think that religion, and I guess just looking at Christianity maybe as a focus, has been used or manipulated by people with evil intentions as a a means of justification and that has unfairly reflected on Christianity? Look, I will say pretty much for every cause that you've mentioned of war, you know, for people who want power, for people who want land rights, for people who, you know, want something that they don't have, I think there's been examples where people have, let's say, manipulated situations to make it seem as though they have one intention, but really they have another. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily unique to Christianity, but I think Christianity is definitely one of the religions who has suffered because of that. Absolutely. And I guess the the golden question that we come away with, looking at conflicts that have included religion and have included God's name in there as a justification for, for violent acts is, well, what is God really like? Vani, I know that you've studied the Bible a lot and you've, you've got a fairly sound understanding of what God is like. Does violence and, and murderous acts and genocide, are those parts of God's character? Look, the God that I have read about and the God that I have a relationship with is one who is loving, who is forgiving, and who is compassionate. So it's really hard to reconcile acts of violence with a God that I find caring, forgiving, and loving. 
And I think one thing that we have to remember is that we don't always see the full picture with things that happen in the Bible. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting point you mentioned because like you and I just were having a chat before we, we went on air and we were talking about the story of Abraham where he was asked by God to, to sacrifice Isaac. And then, you know, he, he obeyed and was willing to do that even though he didn't understand why God would want him to kill his son, to sacrifice his son, until later on when it turns out that that wasn't God's intention at all. Like, is is God a, a, a sort of a mystery as far as his intentions? Is he as simple to read as, as we'd like? Or sometimes is there facets of God's character that we may not have answers for, but may be justified in the, in the longer term with hindsight, do you think? Yeah, well, Daniel, I think that if God wasn't hard to understand, he wouldn't be God. He'd just be like one of us, right? You know, I think that definitely there are some aspects that we're not always going to understand, but the parts of his character that I do understand, the parts that are loving and peaceful and tell us to love our neighbours, that part I do understand and that part we can implement. And the rest we just, I think, go by faith. Yeah, absolutely. And in particular, the Bible has, you know, it describes multiple battles. Like, you know, we talk about the Battle of Jericho, in which the people of Israel, there's a walled city. God says that he will deliver the city into their hands. So they march around the city and then the walls fall down as God promised for them and they just walk through and, and take it. There's the, the battle of AI and a number there. I think one that is particularly perplexing though, that has been used as a, I guess, an argument for the fact that the Bible is violent is uh, the book of First Samuel, chapter 15, actually. And it has this really perplexing verse because God there, well, he was actually through the prophet Samuel. He said, for Saul to go and punish the Amalekites. And the actual verses are, attack them, totally destroy all that belongs to them, do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, that is like an extreme full-on thing. And not only that, but it doesn't really align with the God that we kind of understand it. And that's why things are complex because we don't really understand that contextually, but yet there are hints as to why God commanded that at the time. Like, for example, the Amalekites themselves, you know, the Israelites were God's ordained people whom he loved and protected and stuff. And the Amalekites were, the Israelites never never attacked them. And yet the Amalekites were constantly attacking the Israelites. So they were like, they were fully hating the Israelites. And then also like one of those verses there, like put to death the women and the children. There's another verse prior that hints that the Amalekites would do that anyway. Like whenever someone would attack them, they'd start putting their own children to the slaughter and stuff. Is this one case where we just sort of have to accept that we don't fully understand these sorts of practices? Like were were these practices common around that time and later on in history? Yeah. So I think you've brought up a really good point, Daniel, that even though it seems horrific from our context, we're not thinking about it from the context of what people were like during that time. And ancient civilizations are the general idea of kingdoms were that if you didn't defend yourself, you would be attacked because they were always trying to conquer one another. They were always trying to, you know, take each other's land, property, 
family, the rest, the rest. There is one example, for example, where five sons, Pyrrhus, goes up to Xerxes and he asks, you know, hey, I've got these sons that are all fighting in war for you. Can you just spare my eldest son so that I can have him at home to look after me? And Xerxes was, yeah, he, he just wouldn't have any of that. He saw it as an insult and a doubt in his chances of victory. And he takes the eldest son and cuts him in half. And he put one half on either side of the road and headed off to the battlefield, marching his troops through the two halves of this young man. So I think, I know it sounds crazy, but this is the kind of violent culture that that is around during this time, right? So if you don't kill the children and you don't get rid of all the family members, you actually run the risk of those children growing up and seeking revenge and coming back to attack you. So I'm not sure whether this was a uniquely biblical thing. I think it was just how the ancient cultures were at that time. It was attack or be attacked. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a curly question that maybe you don't even have the answer for, but where do these ideas for these sorts of violence come from? Generally, in the Western world, we're fortunate enough to not see something as extreme as what you just described with King Xerxes. But I know that in other parts of the world at the moment, still, there are horrific acts of violence. If we're talking about the conflict in Afghanistan, the Taliban are starting to do public hangings again. And, and a lot of people are now are saying, like, oh, great, they're going back to their, like, 1990s tactics of, like, amputations and beheadings and all this, like, absolutely sickening stuff that they do there in Afghanistan and they were doing in public. Where What inspired these acts of violence back then, has it always been a feature throughout history? Has it been worse at some point and has it improved? What's been your observation? Sure, that's definitely a curly question, Daniel. I mean, do I know exactly what inspires someone else to cut someone else in half? I personally don't know. <laughs> I cannot even conceive of a world where I would ever do something like that. I can say that you know, obviously one of the earliest forms of laws is the Code of Hammurabi, which was 280 laws that were engraved in stone and they were set in a public location for ancient civilizations to see. And one of the laws said, if a man put out the eye of another man, his eye should be put out. And I mean, you might have heard the phrase today, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And today we think of that as whoever commits an injury, you should get the same punishment. Well, they literally meant if you took someone's eye out, your own eye should be put out. And there was a law that if a son hit his father, you should cut his hands off. If a man builds a house badly and it falls and kills the owner, you need to kill the builder. So, yeah, these ancient laws <laughs> have been around for a pretty long time. Is there a lack of understanding of what God really means sometimes with that? Like we, we can read the Bible literally exactly as it says it from cover to cover and come, come away with a bunch of conclusions that may not be exactly the way that God had intended them for us, right? Some things may be metaphorical, some things may be contextual. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. And I think you hit the nail earlier on when you were talking about how it comes to people interpreting laws and holy books in the way that they want to. And I mean, something that could 
be perfectly innocuous can easily be turned around if someone chooses to interpret something differently. And I think a lot of the time when we're looking at God's word, we're definitely interpreting it through our own personal viewpoint, through our own biases, through our own context. And that will mean different things to different people and different civilizations. So what God might have meant is a, you know, lesson in obedience. People might take literally and go, wow, that was really violent. Or what God might have meant is in a, a lesson of self-sacrifice. People might see differently. Yeah, that's absolutely a, a great point. Now, if it wasn't God's intention for us all to be fighting against each other, if that fundamentally goes against the traits that we've discovered of God's character, the one that loves everybody, uh, that doesn't want people to be like there's that Bible verse about he wants to help us, not to harm us and give us a hope for a future. That's Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, famous verse. Then what is God's ideal? Is it for us to be fighting amongst each other until the end of our days or is there something else? And does that sort of explain what God is really like? Well, one of the two greatest commandments in the Bible is to love our neighbours as ourselves. And I think pretty much you could cancel out every war in the world if we were to follow those principles. So it's not just about loving our physical neighbour, but it's about loving people who aren't necessarily like us. It might be loving people who are in difficulties and hardships. It might be loving people who are in need of justice. I think God's ultimate design is for us to, well, A, love him, but also to share the love of, share his love with our neighbours and show him the light and the good things about religion the chance to show compassion, to show um, light in the darkness rather than to be a reason for battle or war. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I realize that there may be people listening to this podcast who have had bad things happen to them in the name of religion. Like, for example, a few years ago, I was doing some Vox Pops for Science Magazine and I met this guy who, uh, he was, I think he was in Iran, actually, and he He'd spoken out against the government and they accused him of blasphemy. His family denied him, like they, um, yeah, kicked him out essentially. And he had to flee to Australia as an asylum seeker for, for if he hadn't, he would have been executed. And now he, he hates religion. And I was just talking to him and he just wants to get as far away from it as is possible. Again, like we were talking about earlier with the way that things are interpreted and the, also the people are in charge, is it possible, like, even just going down to a personal level, what can we do when we are wronged by someone in the name of religion? Do we, do we take that as a, an indictment on the religion? I understand that that might be an extremely difficult thing to do. What would you say about that? Well, the Bible actually says in Titus chapter 1 verse 16 that there are people who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. So people who are doing things in the name of God, but by the actions that they're doing, they're actually showing that they don't know God. So not only do those people exist, but you know, God actually condemns those types of people in the Bible. He says that there will be people who say, hey, Lord, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been following you. And he'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. So I think it shows that 
our actions and our heart and the way that we treat people say more about who we are than what we say about ourselves. Yeah. Now, Vani, it also says in the Bible towards the time that Jesus, before he returns, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, right? So there seems to be a bit of like a feeling of inevitability that wars will continue on if you are to believe that Jesus is coming again. Now, as we've seen in the the last century, it's been one of the most violent periods in Earth's history. Now, in saying that, I recognize that there have been incredibly violent periods in Earth's history. So it's not like this is a completely unique scenario where the last century has been bad and nothing else has come before it. Like there has been huge amounts of violence, like the Inquisition, persecution, genocide have been features throughout history. But just as far as like the inevitability of war, why doesn't God prevent wars from happening? Or does he allow them to do that for a reason? Like, or what is that reason? I mean, essentially, God gives us free will, you know, and for those who are parents out there and maybe listening, I'm sure you understand that, you know, you try to tell your child what is right and what are the good things to do and how to look after themselves and how to look after people. And sometimes they're not going to make great decisions. Sometimes they might fall into bad circumstances and their life doesn't turn out how you would like them to turn it to. And it doesn't mean that you stop loving them as your children. I mean, you still love them because they're your child, but sometimes they do need to learn lessons that they wouldn't learn otherwise. So, for example, I used to be really into ice skating as a kid. And I remember that on one of those occasions, I sprained my ankle and I didn't want to ice skate again for a really long time. And my mum could have said, you know, hey, I want to protect my daughter. I'm never going to let her go ice skating again. But she knew that the best thing for me was to take time to heal and then get back into it. And even if I ran the risk of falling down and spraining my ankle again, I still needed to have that chance to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as you know, we've been talking about conflict on a, on a global level and you've done an amazing job also making it personal. Just looking at, you know, wars and conflicts, they feel beyond our control. Like when we turn on the news and we see what's going on in Afghanistan and various other parts of the globe, people that are being persecuted from their faith, people that are being persecuted because of religious faiths, there's a feeling of helplessness. Like, like, what can I really do in this situation? But it comes down to the human heart somewhat, doesn't it? We all make our own individual choices to be or not to be like a person who is angry and violent or not. Am I just sweepingly generalizing it? But is that a big factor in, in our lives? Does the Bible ultimately encourage peace for each and every one of us? So the books of Luke and John in the Bible actually talk about Peter, one of the disciples. And there were these soldiers coming to arrest Jesus, you know, in preparation to crucify him. And Peter gets angry and he wants to defend Jesus. And he ends up cutting off a soldier's ear with his sword. And that could so easily have become a reason to start a fight. And I mean, From a Christian perspective, it would have been a perfectly valid reason to start a fight because you're protecting your saviour, your master, your lord, right? Mm. But Jesus 
doesn't start a fight. He rebukes Peter for cutting off the soldier's ear and then he heals it. And whenever I read this story, I just learn so much from that, that, you know, we have this propensity to lose our temper, to become impatient, to get angry with one another. And Jesus, you know, even when it seems valid, just takes the opportunity to make peace instead. And I think yeah. if we want to call ourselves Christians or followers of what Jesus is doing, then we need to remember moments like these. Absolutely. The power of transformation that God offers each and every one of us is absolutely incredible. And if you do want to learn more about how to um, tap into that, feel free to chuck us a message on Facebook, like I mentioned before, or we have a, a website. Go on signsofthetimes.org.au. Uh, slash help and just chuck us a message there and we can send you some courses that you can learn more about God and maybe it'll challenge uh, a few ideas that you have about a God of destruction or wait, what what is God really like? So just chuck us a message there and we can send those through to you. For other people who want to really uh, unpack what, what Vania said in her article, that's also on our website. It's titled, Does Religion Cause War? So I would encourage you to do so if you haven't already. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Vardy, because this this topic has been, it's one we could talk about far more than we already have done. And there's, you know, an infinite amount of stories from history and examples from the Bible that we can continue to bring up to, to debunk this idea. But I feel like you've already, you know, just given us a snapshot that has has done that. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Daniel. It's been really fun. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand.